Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the staff members here at Ridgepoint Church. And uh, my wife and I have two little boys. And uh, the oldest one, uh, Eli, uh, just started school this year. And like most parents, um, you know, we were, we're excited for him. And uh, we wanted to make sure that, you know, we wanted him in the right school and all of that stuff. And so uh, we actually applied for one of the magnet schools. And, and so he ended up going to, uh, he goes to Jewett School of the Arts. And as school kind of, you know, as, as, you know, we knew about it in the summer that, you know, he was going to start here. And we started talking to him about it and everything. And, but before we go on, I really need to tell you a little bit about Eli. Um, he and his brother are, are adopted. And uh, he actually, in just a couple of days, it will be, have been exactly two years that Eli's lived in our home with us. And, but before that, he actually, he lived in 20 different placements, like between the time he was taken out of the home where he was born and, you know, the time that he was in foster care. So 20 different homes that he was in. And so, as you might guess, he's a little nervous. So he, he gets nervous about change and, and different stuff and all of that stuff. And so as we began to approach the beginning of school, one of the things that we knew kind of in the back of our mind is we were excited that he was going to go to school at Jewett, but, and we love the school so far. It's just been great. But the biggest kind of thing for us, you know, the biggest downfall is that it is not at all close to our home. Uh, in fact, uh, we live in the very southwest corner of Winter Haven. It's in the very northeast corner of Winter Haven. And so it takes about 30 minutes to get to the school. So 30 minutes to take him to school, 30 minutes home, another 30 minutes to get him in the, you know. Uh, so we're looking at roughly two hours a day for, you know, travel back and forth from school. But for us, we're like, we have to start this way. I mean, for him, if he's going to... At all, feel comfortable. We have to start this way. We have to take him. We have to pick him up. All of that stuff. Well, about the time that you know school was getting ready to start, before the teachers got back and everything, my wife decided she called the school and said, "Hey, can you know kind of told him a little bit about Eli and said, can can we bring him and let him you know see the school?" And they're like, "Yes, great." One of the assistant principals showed him around and just. <clears throat> you know, was really gracious, showed him all around the school. He loved it. He was so excited. And then as they were about to kind of wrap everything up that day, the assistant principal mentioned something. She mentioned something about riding the bus. Now, Eli had not heard, you know, the possibility that he, that there was a bus involved. Um, You know, he, as far as he knew, we were going to take him back and forth and, and that was fine. But as soon as he heard that term, he, he, heard, he knew what the bus was. Um, he's always talked about the bus. But as soon as he heard that, he began to say to my wife, hey, do I have to ride the bus? I don't want to ride the bus. I don't, you know, just that nervous. I don't want to ride the bus. I don't want to. And ultimately, he kept talking and he kept talking. And, you know, the assistant principal was like, okay, what have I done? You know, what? she kind of backed off a little bit. <clears throat> and after a while, it finally came out as he's talking that, he doesn't want to ride the bus because the bus will take him to the other house. Yeah. <laughs> when you hear that as a parent, that breaks your heart. Because for him, the other house, I don't know what it means. I don't know if it's the last house he lived in before ours or if it's the 19 others that he lived in before ours. But he always says the other house. And so he began to, he immediately is, 
you know, mommy, I don't want to ride the bus. The bus is going to take me to the other house because I know at least at the other house that he rode the bus back and forth. And so in his mind, if he got on the bus, instead of going to our house, it was going to take him to the other house. And so, you know, my wife kind of backed off of that. And obviously, you know, I mean, we'll drive him to school till he's 18. We don't care, you know. I mean, we're going we're gonna to do whatever we need to do. <clears throat> but, you know, after school started a little bit, we, we kind of approached the conversation again. My wife, you know, we, the, the bus leaves our neighborhood about the same time that, that they, you know, that, um, that they actually leave to go to school. And so they would drive alongside the bus, and she would say, That's your, that would be the bus if you rode it. And, and you know, the, she showed them where they let off in the afternoon. And, but in his mind, you know, for all of her explaining and all of her showing, in his mind, if he gets on the bus, it's going to take him to the other house no matter how well we explain that to him. And, you know, for us, you, you know, we kind of sit there and we look at that situation and we think, you know, that, that that's certainly, you know, as much as we've explained it, to us it seems a little irrational. I mean, let's be honest, it, we've explained, you no, know, it's going to drop it at your house. They're going to come to your house. We're going to be there. We're going to wait, you know, all this stuff. But in his mind, he's still going to end up there. So for us, that's a little irrational. You know, we, we think through that and we think, for all that explaining, he still thinks it's going to go to the other house. But if you think about it, we kind of do the same thing. You know, we kind of hold on to some of the same ideas. When we, you know, like if somebody were to look into your life and they were to look at some of the things that you're struggling with, the pains, the sufferings, and those kinds of things, from an outsider's perspective, we might look into your life and say, you know what, that thing that you're holding on to, it's kind of irrational. Like, it's not doing you any good. In fact, you holding on to it, it's kind of hurting you. It's causing problems in your life that you don't even see. Like, they're, they're, you're destroying relationships in your life because of something that happened to you years and years and years ago. And so as an outsider would look into that, we would think that's kind of irrational. But to us, it makes perfect sense. To us, it makes sense to hold on to that thing because I was hurt and because that person betrayed me and I just, I got to hold on to it because I have to be reminded of what happened. And, and, and you may, you're saying, well, what are you talking about, Chris? Well, I mean, it could look like a lot of different things. I mean, for... Like, like Denise shared earlier, it could be that situation where, you know, you were in a relationship or a marriage and, you know, it went on for years and then all of a sudden you were betrayed. And you can't, years later, you can't get past it. You're still holding on to it. You still want, you want to see that other person hurt. You want to see justice. You want to, you're just, you're holding on to that pain and you can't seem to let it go. Or maybe it's a situation from your childhood, kind of like Eli's situation. Maybe, you know, maybe there was a parent or a guardian in your life who, for whatever reason, they, they hurt you in some way. Maybe it was physical abuse, maybe mental abuse, maybe even, unfortunately, sexual abuse. And we're holding on to that. We're struggling with that. It's affecting everything of our life, but we can't seem to let it go. Maybe it's, 
maybe a situation where you have a friend that was hurt, or maybe it was a spouse or, or somebody close in your family where it wasn't actually you that was hurt, it was them that was hurt. And you see that being played out. You see how it affects them and how it's affecting, you know, they're holding on to it. And, and you want revenge and you want justice for that person. And, and you're, you're just holding on to it. And it, it's affecting your relationship, maybe even affecting your relationship with that person. Or maybe it's, I mean, let's be honest, we've all done some pretty bad things. Maybe it's something that we've done. I mean, maybe we were the cause of all the problem. Maybe we were the cause of the pain and the suffering. And now here on you know, this side of it, we see the bad that we cause. We see the hurt that we cause. We see the frustration that people feel with us because of what we did. And so we can't seem to move beyond it because we can't forgive ourselves. We can't get beyond it ourselves. But here's, here's kind of the takeaway for today. The takeaway is this, that holding on keeps us from moving on. I mean, when we hold on to that stuff, when we hold on to that pain and that suffering and how we feel, that revenge, that justice that we want, when we hold on to those things, it keeps us from being able to move on. It keeps us from being able to get to any sense of what, kind of what we're looking for, at least in this series, this idea of freedom. So if you're just joining us for today, we're actually in the middle of a series, and it's called, it's called Freeway. And the idea behind it is we're kind of on this freeway, this journey toward what we call freedom. In fact, that's the last week as we wrap this up, that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to talk about this idea of what freedom means. Because it probably means, you know, the way we're talking about it probably means a little bit different than what we've been taught as Americans. But we're on this journey, and we're, we're kind of been working through the different steps. And, and at this point, I would normally kind of walk you through all those steps. We're, we're actually going to do that in just a second. We're going to look at a specific scripture, a, a specific passage in scripture. But we're also, we, we kind of need to understand the context of where this passage came from, because I think this story in particular from Scripture is a perfect example of how we work through this idea of forgiveness. In fact, I think it's a perfect example of how we walk through all these steps of this freeway or this process of moving toward freedom that we're on. And we're not going to read the story at this point. We're going to read some Scripture in just a minute. But I just want to tell you the story because we kind of need to move a little bit quickly today. But this story is actually found in 2 Samuel, and it's, <coughs> excuse me, in chapters 11 and 12 is where you actually find the story. And you probably, even if you're not, you know, totally, maybe you didn't grow up in church, maybe church is completely new to you, at some point you probably have at least heard of one of the characters in the story, Okay. Uh, in fact, his name is David, all right? And even if you don't know church at all or don't know scripture at all, you probably know the story of David and Goliath. You've heard that. You know, this young kid comes along, he defeats this great giant, Goliath. Maybe you've even, you know, if you don't know scripture at all, you don't know David, you might have even heard in culture it referenced when you stand up to somebody big, heard that called Goliath. But. That, that's a great story. You know, here's David. He does what God tells him to do. He has all this courage. He has this faith that God has given him. But the story we're going to look at today is kind of the opposite of that. 
It's kind of David walking away from God and kind of doing his own thing. Because it is a great example. No matter, like, you know, we're a pretty big room of people today. And, you know, it's relatively full in here today. And I would say this, that no matter how much bad stuff you've done in your life, no matter, you know, like, maybe that's your issue of forgiveness, that you can't get past the stuff that you've done in your life. I would venture to say, now, I'm not going to say 100%, because, you know, I, I don't know what you've done, all right? But I would venture to say that most of us have not done what David did. I mean, David was the king. He did some horrible things. The things that, like, if you had done these things, you would be in jail. You'd be on the Polk County Sheriff's website. You know, your picture would be there. There might be, you know, some, there might be some stories, like, you, you might be on Jerry Springer or something like that, okay? I mean, the stuff that David did in this particular setting was horrible stuff. But yet, he can be forgiven. He can move through that process of forgiveness because no matter what we've done, God will forgive us. God will forgive us. And so we're going to walk through that process. In fact, um, the story is actually David and Bathsheba. Um, I'd encourage you, go read it. It seems like every time I read that story, I read more. it, It sinks in more how much horrible stuff David did. But here's what happened. David had been the king for just a little bit of time, not too long. He was the king of Israel. And he, won, he was actually supposed to be out leading his men in battle. I mean, it says that in Scripture that that's where he should have been, but he wasn't. He went up in, on the kind of the, the top of his palace, looking out over the city. And as he's looking out over the city, he sees this woman um, in the distance bathing. And instead of doing the smart thing, which would have been to go back inside at this point, he kept looking. And not only did he keep looking, but then he started to ask, okay, who's that woman? Who is she? And his attendants, his people kind of, they said, you know what? That is actually uh, Bathsheba. She is married to one of your commanders, a guy named Uriah. And, you know, he's off fighting, okay? And there she is. That's who she is. And instead of just asking, David also sent for her. So she comes to the palace. Um, One thing leads to another. Uh, She leaves. And pretty soon, David gets the message from Bathsheba that she's pregnant. Now, you you can go read the story yourself. I'd encourage you to do that. Um, But there's some indication in the story that they knew it was David's kid. Okay, I'm, we're not going to go into the details of what that is at this point. But they knew it was David's kid, all right? So now David has this problem. Now he could have, at this point, he could have taken ownership for what he did. We talked about that last week, that idea of taking ownership for what we do. But he didn't. Instead of taking ownership, he decides to cover it up. So he sets out to cover it up, and what he does is he sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, says, bring him back to the palace, and David tries to kind of finagle things to make it look like that this is Uriah's kid, that, you know, Bathsheba becomes pregnant by Uriah. And he tries a couple different things. Again, go read the story. He fails, you know. Um, And so eventually he's like, this isn't going to work. So he takes it a step further, and he says this, instead of making it look this way, we're just going to I'm going to have Uriah killed. So he writes this message to his commander of his army, 
seals it up, takes it, gives it to Uriah and says, go back to the front and take this to Joab, the commander of the army. And, you know, Uriah doesn't know what it says. He delivers it to Joab. And Joab opens the message and it says, hey, put this guy at the front and make sure he dies. And so that's what Joab does. Uh, they're in battle one day. He sends a group of men into a situation that he knew wasn't a good thing to send them into. He knew people were going to die. And Uriah's killed, and there's an indication that several others are killed along with it. So not only did David have him murdered, he had other people murdered as well. And so they're killed in the process of this, and David manages to cover it up. Now, there's a lot more to the story. Again, I encourage you to go read it. But at this point, David kind of moves on. He moves on, you know. And I, I don't know why. Maybe I think, in my mind, I kind of think, you know, he's the king. And, you know, this was common practice in other kingdoms. And, you know, nobody would have batted an eye at it. And I think he probably thought the same thing, that I'm, I'm going to get away with this. I'm going to do it. And he moves on. Until one of God's prophets comes along, a guy named Nathan. And Nathan shows up. And he says to David, hey, let me, let me tell you a story. And the story goes like this. There's this rich guy and there's this poor guy. And the poor guy has this lamb that he just loves. It's his prized possession. He takes care of it. He feeds it from his table. It sleeps with him. <clears throat> and then the rich guy has all these herds, all these things that you know, we, can, we can't imagine. And all of a sudden, a guest shows up at the rich man's home. And instead of going and taking one of his animals and feeding him and having the feast, he goes and gets the poor man's lamb. And he takes it and throws this great feast for this guest. And David hears the story and he gets so upset. He's so angry. He's like, we got to get this guy. You know, there needs to be justice. He needs to, you know, he has to pay for this. Da, 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 da. And Nathan kind of looks at him and he says, David, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. You're the one that did all of this stuff. Now, if you kind of, you know, you've been following along with us in kind of our steps through this whole freeway process, that's David's first step, awareness, okay? Because he had forgotten about, he really had moved on from what he had done. He had forgotten about it or pushed it to the side, ignored it, whatever. Here's his awareness. All of a sudden, he's like, oh, that was me. I am the one in the story. Now, what is interesting, for all the bad that David does, it is interesting that he moves through the steps toward freedom very quickly. So, he, in fact, like one of the next things he says after Nathan kind of continues to talk and kind of says, you know, here are the consequences, here's what's going to happen because of this sin that you've committed. And at the end of that, David says, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against God. And that's step two for him. That's his discovery step, his discovery step. I, I've sinned against God. And then he immediately kind of, you know, one of the consequence that Nathan says to him is, the son that you're going to have with Bathsheba, the son is going to die. I mean, that's, that's part of the consequences of what's going to happen. And David, so David begins to kind of, he, he goes and he fasts and he prays and He's, he's asking God, you know, please don't do this. Don't, you know, don't kill this. Don't, don't let the son die. And, I mean, just whole sackcloth and ashes. 
And I would say that we're going to look at this in just a second. The passage that we're about to read, I believe, probably was written during this time or close to after it, okay? Because when you see what the, what the story says about how David was kind of approaching this, I believe that the things that we are going to read in just a minute are things that he would have said during this time as he's asking for God to please, please not do this to his son. So this goes on, you know, his mourning, his sackcloth and ashes goes on for about a week, his fasting. And at, toward the end of the week, you know, the son passes away and the you know, his attendants kind of, they don't want to cover it up they, or they don't want to tell him because, you know, here he is, he's destroyed and we're afraid if we tell him this, it's, it's going to get even worse. But finally, you know, they're whispering and talking about it and finally David says, my son has died, right? And they're like, yeah, he has. And he does something weird. Instead of, like they imagine, him breaking down even more, he cleans himself up, cleans himself up and he goes and it says that he began to worship God. He began to worship God. And I really think that's kind of his third step, his kind of ownership step. He's like, you know what? In fact, he even said, they said to him, why, why did you do this? Why did you clean yourself up? And he said, well, at the time when I was fasting and praying, there was something I could do. I could try to change God's mind. But at this point, I can't. So I'm going to take ownership. I'm going to move on. So he kind of walks through these steps very quickly, which leads us to, I think, what is the most important step. I mean, on this whole freeway process, you know, this whole journey that we're on, the step that we're talking about here, this forgiveness step, is, pro- is I think, by far the most important. In fact, I would say this, that the journey to freedom has to go through forgiveness, that the journey to freedom has to go through forgiveness. I mean, I think those steps are, the first three are important, but without this step, without us being able to, you know, for, without us being able to quit holding on, we're never going to be able to move on. So this step is so huge and so important, and it can mean a lot of different things. I mean, forgiveness can mean you forgiving other people. Generally, that's what it is that we've been hurt, we're suffering, we're struggling, we have bitterness because of something that someone else did to us. (coughs) So we're struggling with that. We need to forgive those people. Or maybe, you know, like our other situation, maybe it was somebody that hurt somebody in our family and we need to forgive those people. Maybe we need to forgive ourselves. In this particular passage that we're going to look at, David is asking forgiveness from God. But I believe it's, it's a great way, it's a, it's a kind of a guide for us, no matter what journey we're on, for us to get that forgiveness that we're looking at, looking for, whether it's forgiving ourselves, forgiving other people, whatever that looks like. So, <coughs> excuse me, the passage is actually Psalm 51. And we're going to start out actually this way. We're going to look at the inscription that goes right before the psalm. It says this, Psalm 51, if you've ever read the Psalms, up at the top usually there's a little description of where the psalm came from. And this one says this, to the choir master, so it was designed to be read in public, sung in public, whatever. And it says this, that this is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So 
here David is, basically what he's written, what he's pouring his heart out, he's asking forgiveness from God after all of this stuff has happened, after all this awareness on his part. In verse 1, it says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, David took probably the hardest step of all, the step that, that we all struggle with. You know, it's kind of what we talked about last week, that we, we want to assign blame. You know, here David had the opportunity to say, you know what, this happened and this happened and that happened in my childhood and da-da-da-da-da, and so I committed this sin. Instead, he says, God, have mercy on me. I'm the one that did this. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out what I've done. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David uses kind of some imagery here that is kind of common throughout Scripture. The idea that we need to be washed from our sin, be cleansed from our sin. In fact, the imagery here is not just wash me once, God, but wash me over and over and over again so that I can be cleansed. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See, David recognized something. He knew that if he kept holding on to this stuff, if he kept holding on to this stuff, he would never be able to move on. He knew that holding on would keep him from moving on. And so he says, right there, my sin is ever before me. That if I don't confess this, God, if you don't give me forgiveness, then I'm never going to be able to move on from this. Again, that applies whether it's stuff that we've done or it's stuff that's been done to us. Verse 4, against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, now this is a little tricky. When I, you know, I first read this, I'm like, well, he didn't just sin against God. I mean, he sinned against all these other people. I mean, he had Uriah killed. He had these other people murdered. You know, Bathsheba, Joab, he's got them all involved in this whole thing. It wasn't just God that he sinned against. But what David's recognizing is that it is God's law that he's broken. That when he commits sin, it ultimately it is God who he's offended, that he's, that he's caused this problem with. Sure, all these other people are involved, and he needs to figure out how to move beyond that stuff as well. But ultimately, when we sin, when we do these things, it is ultimately God that we've sinned against. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So not only is he saying, God, forgive me of all this stuff that just happened, but forgive me of the stuff going back to when I was born. I was born in sin. Please forgive me of that as well. And that's where a lot of us have to look. When, you know, the things that we're holding on to sometimes are the things that go way back. Those are the things that we're holding on to that is keeping us from moving on. 
verse 6. I love this because to me, this is kind of where, where David kind of begins to turn the corner. And he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that was used in some of the cleansing sacrifices. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In fact, that when it says purge, one of the things I was studying, said so when Martin Luther translated that um, into German, he actually, the word that he used meant, unsin me, God. Make it so that I've never sinned before. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. As I'm forgiven, God, as you forgive me, let me be able to rejoice again. Put me in right standing. Be able, let me be able to be free again free to serve you in the way that you intended. <clears throat> Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I mean, ultimately, isn't that what we want? You know, when it comes to forgiveness, that's what we want. We want God to create a clean heart in us. A clean heart because somebody's hurt us and we're holding on to that. Or a clean heart because we've done something wrong and we want, we want to get out of that. We want to, we want to be set free from that. We want to we don't want to be a prisoner to that anymore. We want that clean heart. God, create in us a clean heart that our spirit may be made right with you. The road or the pathway to freedom goes through forgiveness. You know, thinking back to Eli's situation, again, you know, as I joked earlier, you know, if he needs to ride the bus until, or if he needs to, we need to take him to school until he's 18 or until he graduates, or even if we have to drive him to school and take him home from college, we're going to do it, okay? <clears throat> we're going to do whatever we need to do. But in that situation, in that, you know, what we kind of perceive as that irrationality or that thing that he's holding on to, I mean, obviously he's five. He's, he's not, it's going to be years before he's going to be able to get beyond those things. But some of us are sitting here and we've been holding on to things a lot longer than that. We've been holding on to them for years and years. And, you know, if it's things that happen in your childhood, we're holding on to it, and it's keeping us from moving on. It's keeping us from moving on, and it's hard work. Don't get me wrong. I'm not discounting what happened to you. I'm not, you know, I'm not downplaying that. But it's happened to you, and you have to figure out how to move on. And doing that involves forgiveness, forgiving yourself, forgiving others, and ultimately God's forgiveness. That's the one that cleanses us. That's the one that creates in us a pure heart. That's the one that puts us back in right standing with him. Holding on keeps us from moving on. Let's pray.